Welcome to episode 57 of the Empowering Ability Podcast. You are listening to the Empowering Ability Podcast and making expectations for what is possible for people with developmental disabilities. Here is your host, my brother, Elba. Hey folks, welcome to the podcast. I hope you enjoyed that new introduction and the new uh, music with my sister, uh, Sarah, and uh, I I just love it. So I hope you do as well. Now, I also love this conversation that I'm bringing you today with Michael Kendrick on imagining better. And in reflection of this conversation with Michael, the question popped into my mind uh, of how to create a life worth living and a life worth living. Uh, you might be thinking, Eric, are you implying that there are lives that aren't worth living? And it's really a big question. And I want you to consider that question for yourself. What I do know is that people with developmental disabilities or intellectual disabilities are devalued and suppressed largely unconsciously by society, by our families, and even by ourselves. And I'm guilty of this too. When a person's devalued, it's very difficult to access the opportunities that everyone else can access. And this often results in isolation, loneliness, and suffering. And again, I ask a life worth living. I ask you to consider that for yourself. And what I also know is that I can do better. I know that we can do better and I know our society can do better. And it really all starts with vision. So why do we need a vision? Well, as human beings, vision is the sense that we trust the most. We trust we trust our eyes and from an evolutionary perspective we're always looking out for dangers and looking for rewards and this was really key to our survival. And also where we look is where we go. So I want to give you an example of surfing. So if we're if you're surfing and you're looking at the rocks, you're going to end up on the rocks. If you're surfing and you're looking at the beach, then you'll end up at the beach. And here I'm talking about vision as one of our five human senses. However, these truths about our senses apply to our vision of the future. And if we can imagine or if we can see in our minds where we want to be in the future, where we want to be five years from now or however far out you want to look, two years from now, ten years from now, We can trust, we can see that we can get there and we start to move in that direction. So when we're looking at the destination we want to get to in the future, five years from now, we move in that direction. Just like the surfer that looks at the beach and steps off their board into the soft sand instead of crying out for help to be saved while being pushed up on the jagged rocks because they were looking at the rocks. So I'm really excited to bring you this conversation with Michael Kendrick on vision. And Michael Kendrick, uh, this is the second time around on the podcast with Michael. And Michael uh, Kendrick is a PhD. 
He's uh, an international consultant in human services. He's involved in consulting, education, and evaluative work with uh, a wide variety of groups, so governments, private agencies, advocacy groups, community groups, university and colleges, and he does his work across the world. And he really brings some great perspectives. He's a deep thinker, and I'm excited to bring you this conversation. We cover the topics of what is vision? Why is it so important? Why is vision so important for people with intellectual or developmental disabilities? And how do you go about creating a vision? So without any further ado, here's my conversation with Michael Andrews. Hi, Michael. Thanks for joining me today on the podcast. Uh, great to be here. It's uh, a pleasure to have you back on for round two. Uh, excited to have or continue our conversation. Um, and today I'm excited to have our conversation around vision and cover some different aspects of vision. Um, so I guess maybe, maybe, Michael, to start, it might be helpful if you could uh, briefly explain to our listeners what vision is. Well, it's typically a, the way we see the world. Uh, so in that sense, uh, vision differs from one person to another as to how they see and understand the world that they're in. And it's quite possible, for, therefore, for uh, people to uh, have different content in their vision. In other words, the substance of their vision may be quite different. Uh, for instance, a good example of this is that there may be subject matter that uh, – we have no vision on because we've never thought about it before. Whereas other people might have a very developed understanding of particular subjects or aspects of the world. So in that sense, vision is created by people about uh, the world that they're interested in or committed to. And uh, that, uh, that vision, of course, can shift over time. Uh, but uh, nonetheless, we operate with almost like looking out into the world uh, from some kind of understanding of that world. Mm. Okay, so it's this, <clears throat> it's something that we create in our mind. It can help us think about what we want the world or our world to look like in the future. And I think there's maybe uh, some some people that, out there that think, well, that sounds kind of fluffy, like a, a vision. Do I really need one? Like I just do what I do and I'm kind of, I, I kind of just live my life. Um, what are your thoughts on, on that when you hear somebody say, well, a vision's fluffy? Well, in some, in some instances it can be quite fluffy. So in that sense, uh, vision uh, can differ even within the same person over time. Uh, for instance, uh, your understanding of tragedy may change dramatically when you've been through a tragedy. But up until that point, uh, you hadn't had a real taste of tragedy, so your vision for it might be quite limited. Uh, so in that sense, our life experiences uh, shift our vision, um, and we can be self-conscious about vision and shift it Without a catalyst, almost just through our own initiative, we can decide to look at the world in a quite different way. Uh, a good example of this would be the decision to see the good in people. Um, 
would be a, a way to approach people as if there is good in people. But if your vision is that most people are nasty or unpleasant or whatever, then what you're going to encounter is nasty, unpleasant people because that's sort of what you're looking for. Right, right. And that translates into how you live your life and how you show up. And to me, the way you've described that, like when you talk about how somebody you know, might view another person, whether, you know, everybody's good or everybody's bad. To me, that sounds very close to a belief. Is there a difference between what you're describing as a vision and a belief, or are those the same things? No, the, the belief would be the uh, conviction at the time about the vision. So our beliefs alter our vision. And, uh, and you mentioned a very good word, which is mind. Because mind creates uh, consciousness, and consciousness uh, really uh, illuminates the world for us. Uh, and the, 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 depending on the nature of the, the consciousness, so we're constantly creating new reality uh, and creating new beliefs as we go. That yeah, that helps to to differentiate the two between vision and beliefs, and so. Why is it so that we've you've talked about what a vision is? Why is it important for maybe we can start at the individual level? Like, why is it important for an individual to have a vision for their life? And maybe we can go maybe even more specific here. Why is it important for an individual with a disability or a developmental disability, intellectual disability, to have a vision for their life? Well, because it, if it's a, a vision that uh, creates opportunities for them, then it creates life-giving possibilities. Uh, and if there is no vision for those possibilities, they won't be pursued uh, because there'll be no uh, sense that they exist and that that could benefit the person. For instance, when a lot of people with disabilities will have been raised under the expectation that work and employment is not going to be part of their future. And uh, so it may, uh, even if they might from time to time like to work, they may have been persuaded that they won't get work, uh, that it's not part of their future. Uh, and so in that sense, people get resigned to a particular worldview uh, through conditioning and the reinforcement of uh, uh, a particular worldview, uh, and that can lock people into limited life possibilities. And of course, that's at a greater risk with people with disabilities, but it's also uh, more of a universal that we can all be self-limiting uh, in our own way, um, simply because we uh, are looking at the world as if certain things aren't really uh, for for us or wouldn't work for us or something of that sort. So we don't uh, pursue them. Um, so again, what that may mean is that people have many undeveloped, unrecognized potentials in life and capacities that are never explored because of the limited vision for them and also the conviction that they don't exist. Mm. Yeah. As you're speaking, it reminded me of a quote. I don't know who to attribute this to, but uh, it's if 
you don't have a plan, you're part of somebody else's plan, and their plan might not be that good for you. So when I think about this in the context of an individual that has a developmental disability, it could be someone else has the plan of a segregated classroom for you. Someone has the plan for you that you will never work. Someone has the plan for you that you are going to live in a group home. And um, that plan just isn't that good. <laughs> There's better, uh, more optimal um, things out, out there for you in, in the world. Um, what are your thoughts on that? I think it's a very apt way of putting it, really, because the, um, uh, in the absence of uh, a vision, the vision of others uh, fills the vacuum. And if that vision is a kind of a negative one or a limited one, it occupies the ground uh, that defines what people do with their life. And, uh, you know, this is societal in nature that certain societies will have a lack of collective vision, uh, such as, for instance, in Canadian, the Canadian context, the vision of indigenous people is largely negative uh, and devaluing. And uh, the uh, you know something like forty percent of female uh, prisoners in Canada are indigenous women, you know, in the women's prison system, and that's no accident. That's a that's a societal vision for indigenous people. Mm. And I, I, this isn't a topic that I'm um, that I know the stats on, but. I could see the same being the same for people of color, um, especially in the United States. Yeah, well, many countries, actually. Um, but again, yes, you can see it then in the empiricism of big numbers, because you see that uh, this is no accident that people are treated a particular way because of the shared uh, view of them in the society in which they find themselves. And all societies tend to produce devalued groups at the margins. Um, and that's, again, uh, if you could look at it in that way, uh, it may, people may not be conscious of it uh, or on a daily basis, but if you step back, you see that this is an entrenched belief system uh, built on typically negative uh, vision of the particular group. And people with disabilities have uh, are viewed typically in society as devalued. So when thinking about vision for a, a, an individual that has a developmental disability, how can you start to break free of that? Um, and maybe one of the things that comes to mind for me that um, I know you're quite fluent in is thinking about culturally valued analog. Um, so maybe you could speak to that and whatever else comes to mind for you, Michael, on breaking free of that devaluation um, by society? Well, I think the, uh, what is devalued initially is the very presence of a disability. It's seen as a negative uh, factor or feature of a person. And uh, people then generalize from the disability to the person in their entirety. So you're no longer uh, a full human being. You're a full human being that's sort of uh, lacking, and uh, then assumptions follow from that from that perception, that original perception. Now, uh, 
if you wanted to change that, then you would have to say, well, yes, the person does have a disability. In fact, most people will live with some kinds of impairments, but it need not really affect your uh, the fullness of your life potentials. Uh, so that you know, uh, you know, you could, for instance, uh, be a bit hard of hearing and still be uh, have a quite rich life. You could uh, be uh, physically impaired in some ways uh, and yet have a quite rich life. But uh, that vision for the rich life is overshadowed by the negative vision of the apparent disability uh, of the person, and. Uh, uh, so uh, it, it's interesting with the person-centered movement in the disability field, as well as elsewhere, uh, what people have been trying to emphasize for years has been it's the person that matters, not the disability. And who is this person and what are their life potentials? Uh, because that uh, person-centered assumption uh, starts the thinking process of what is the fullness of this person's humanity and how might that be materialized or brought into greater uh, evidence? Um, and uh, so in that sense, the person's seen as full of potentials, uh, notwithstanding that they live with some kind of an impairment. Hmm. And I'm just thinking through that and it makes a lot of sense to focus on on the person and, and the uniqueness of the person, what that person's good at, great at, their interests, where they would like to explore. Um, but what are your thoughts on on the disability side of things? Like, I, I don't, I'm just trying to think through it in terms of their disability still exists. Um, it's a part of who they are. Um, there's an acknowledgement of that within um, for that individual and 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 for the people around them. So when thinking about their vision, um, how do you still acknowledge that disability or impairment that they have? Just by being honest and accurate about it, but not giving it more emphasis than its needs you know uh, for instance it'd be very obvious if somebody was mobility impaired that they'd uh, there'd be situations where they'd have considerable difficulty because they're mobility impaired for instance in winter conditions on sidewalks and so on wouldn't be very good for somebody using a, a electric powered wheelchair uh, but it would also be true for a lot of people that ice and snow impairs them. Um, and so it's living within one's limits uh, is uh, what you do with any kind of impairment. Uh, for instance, uh, you know, on icy days in winter, it's very interesting how many people slip and fall on the ice because their balance isn't very good. Uh, but you can have a perfectly good life and just be careful when you're around ice. So it's living with the impairment in a kind of shrewd or practical way uh, that uh, it kind of doesn't neutralize it. It says it's it's only worth some of the attention. And uh, you raise the question of the culturally valued analog. It's, of course, a term that comes out of uh, social role valorization theory. 
but what the culturally valued analog is helpful for is it helps people think about what would a person of the same age uh, be typically doing with their life? And so the culturally valued analog is really what do most people uh, do at a certain age in their life? For instance, if you're six years old, would you be in school? If you're a 25-year-old, would you be either doing further study or would you be working at a, a regular job? So it often gets the, the value of it just helps people think about people in normative terms uh, as being part of the mix of normal life opportunities. What that does then is build vision for those life opportunities as something that uh, this person could conceivably access. Now, for instance, a good example of this is young people, you know, when they start out in life, often like to travel to see the world a bit, you know? Mm -hmm. And uh, there was a time I didn't see very many people with developmental disabilities traveling uh, to see the world. These days, it's quite common. But, uh, you know, as long as the practicalities are taking place or taken care of, many people with disabilities can travel pretty much like anybody else. And so the issue of, uh, you know, the opportunity for life experiences associated, for instance, with international uh, travel or should be as available to them as anybody else if the practicalities can be worked out. Yeah, that's that's helpful. So uh, I think there's some important points there that you've that you've shared Michael, so acknowledging um, or being accurate and honest about the disability, but um, not giving it more attention that it needs, right? So still having that, having the focus on on the person, um, and not letting that limit the scope or the um, richness of the vision um, because of the disability and. I really like how you explained, you know, with a culturally valued analog, what would somebody else, what would another person of similar, um, you know, gender, vintage, um, nationality, uh, do like what's, what's normal, um, for, for someone else, um, that that's of similar, um, traits, uh, characteristics that, you know, doesn't have a disability or is viewed as normal by society and using that as a frame to help think through what a potential vision is for, for that person. Um, so I guess for somebody who's listening, Michael, who might be a mother or a father or uh, a sibling who has a loved one with a developmental disability, or it could be um, even a, a supporter or a person with a developmental disability themselves, how would you suggest starting this process? So they're listening and they're thinking, okay, this creating a vision sounds like it would be helpful for my life. It would help me to have some direction, um, something to aim at, to move forward um, toward. Um, how all this sounds great. How do I go about doing it? That's a good, good question because when you're not familiar with something, it's a lot more difficult. So in that sense, uh, with time and practice, people can uh, face this challenge uh, easy, in a much easier uh, manner than would be if it's your first time of thinking about it. Uh, for instance, uh, one of the 
consequences of living with the disabilities is that you're very likely to end up living in or being existing in segregated and congregated environments, largely in the company of other people with disabilities. And that can start at, you know, segregated preschool programs and then segregated uh, schooling and, and so on. And so for a family, an interesting question is, using the culturally valued analog, uh, what would be the inclusive or inter socially integrated option as opposed to the segregated option? Uh, for instance, uh, you know, many uh, young, uh, young people might opt to go to guides or to uh, cubs uh, or scouts. Uh, uh, and, uh, you know, the, uh, these days, uh, you know, many parents wouldn't think about doing that um, because they think, well, there should be sort of scouts for the disabled or something like that. When, in fact, the Boy Scouts of America Association, for now over a generation, has welcomed people with disabilities as regular members in their various groups, you know. And so there's the question of vision. Uh, we've schooled many families to think that the option they should start with is the segregated option, when, in fact, uh, the better option might be to ask the question, well, what do most people do? And why is it that the person with disability isn't where everybody else is? And uh, and there might be good reasons why they're not there, uh, but are they uh, impediments that could be resolved? Uh, for instance, uh, you know, there, there may be uh, consequences of living with a disability that intrude upon their ability to join a particular group. But don't that doesn't necessarily mean that they can't join. It just means that we need to support that situation so that the person can be successful in it. And uh, we may not know at the outset what that looks like. Um, but as long as you have the intent of it, you can begin to do that practical work of figuring out, well, how could we make that person uh, successful for instance, uh, you know, there are many people with disabilities that I know that quite enjoy swimming. And uh, there's lots of open swimming opportunities in public uh, pools and things uh, where anybody can come and uh, swim. And um, uh, so if it's that the person might have behavior that puts people off, well, you've got to figure out, well, what could help with that? Or the person doesn't know what good conduct is in a swimming pool, well, you could figure out what to do with that. Or the person, uh, you know, isn't uh, very good in judging their swimming ability. Well, what sort of support might they need? So as you just raise these what ifs, you can begin the process of figuring out, well, what would offset that? What would support the person to be successful in that situation? And of course, you can now see countless uh, public swimming pools where, where people with disabilities are present uh, almost unnoticed, really, uh, most of the time. Uh, I remember it was very uh, interesting for me one time. I was swimming lanes, and I uh, was just pulling up to the end of the pool to get water out of my goggles, and there was a young man with Down syndrome who was doing exactly the same thing I was doing, which was taking a, a break for a minute to get their goggles cleared. And I thought, well, on some level this is the most profoundly ordinary thing in the world uh, but the fact that they're 
hadn't been a lot of people with Down syndrome swimming lanes in my experience meant that this was a first for me. I'd never encountered um, a co-swimmer uh, who had Down syndrome at that point. That would have been you know, a generation back. But, uh, uh, you know, it's, nowadays I don't think anybody remark on it. But at that time it was new to me. I hadn't seen that kind of inclusion of people with disabilities in, uh, in a generic uh, activity in quite the same way. So as you can see, it might be quite different now uh, from what it, what it would have been at that point, because I, I would have had limited examples. Well, probably may have been longer even than a generation back, but in any event, you see that you can see that vision can shift. And when it shifts, it can create new life opportunities. So it's not inconsequential vision. It's in, you know, going back to your first question, is it fluffy? Um, it's not fluffy at all because vision creates realities and, uh, if you like, uh, prevents realities. Right. And I like your question, what would the inclusive option be? I think for many of us, I think I mentioned this earlier, is that we just get stuck in the default. We get stuck in the limited menu options that are presented to us. So, you know, that could be the Special Olympics swimming and view that viewing that as, well, that's the only option um, because it's viewed as the safe option. It's viewed as the option that my son or daughter or brother or sister or loved one will be accepted there. And then so the, the, somehow the door closes and that's okay that's the only option that's what we're going to do and i like your question what would be the inclusive option and thinking through well what other options are there okay the inclusive option is the open swim or the inclusive inclusive option is the aquafit class that everybody else attends or just thinking through uh, or maybe it's joining a swim team um and thinking through through that, right? And it's also bringing in, I like that question because it's also very closely tied to what would, what's the culturally, culturally valued analog, right? What's the, what's the normative thing to do? And um, uh, there's, there's such an array of things that are within the culturally valued analog. It's not like you have to do what everybody else does. You find your place in the culturally valued analog as as to doing what suits you. For instance, uh, even if one of the options in the culturally valued analog might be swimming, a lot of people don't care to swim, but they might love to do square dancing, or they might love to, you know, play pool, or they might, you know, do any number of other recreational things. So, the culturally valued analog is so massive in terms of the life opportunities you really, at the individual level, then find your niche in all of that, the parts of the inclusive world that most appeal to you. Because we can't get up and do everything, and we don't want to. Uh, for instance, some people just love food and love cooking. And there's just hundreds of ways to express that love. Um, and, uh, and people find their niche with cooking. And with food, you know, for instance, you 
develop a certain taste for certain kinds of cuisines, you know, uh, and but it's all part of the culturally valued analog. But you don't have to participate in everything. You participate in the elements of the culturally valued analog that resonate with your nature and for which you find the encounter with those things uh, satisfying. Um, for instance, a very good example is just what kinds of things people turn to by way of entertainment that they enjoy and uh, what others don't enjoy, you know. So it's, uh, uh, for instance, there are people who are just very into music or particular kinds of music, uh, but that would mean that there'd be all kinds of people that wouldn't be into that kind of music. Uh, so in this sense, the culturally valued analog isn't imposed on people. It is uh, there to be explored uh, for people to find out a little bit who they are and what they'd like to do. And with people with disabilities, that exploration uh, um, may be stymied a bit because people settle on a limited range of options. Uh, rather than showing a certain adventurousness in terms of other things that people might, uh, you know, might enjoy. Uh, but uh, nobody would think they would enjoy it, or they just think, oh, well, that just wouldn't work, or whatever. Uh, and I've always enjoyed being surprised by what people enjoy, you know, because who would have known, you know? Uh, I'll give you an example. It was a guy I know quite well, and uh, I know his mother and uh, family quite well in New Zealand. And uh, he's a deeply religious man, and is is his if he could have done his life the way he really wanted it, he would have liked to have been a Catholic priest. Um, and he has done done everything up to that at this point. Um, he's just very devout, uh, and his faith is very important to him. And he's a man with Down syndrome, and he's uh, you know he he's found roles in the Catholic Church for himself uh, that are quite satisfying. But he's still a little discontented. He would have liked to have, have been a priest, so uh, Catholic priest. Um, but you could see he's been on a journey, uh, trying to find out who he was and what was important to him, and um, and he's come a great distance. Um, even though he's, uh, you know, he's, he still has ambitions beyond where he's got to. Mm -hmm. I, I love how you put put it, Michael. Um, thinking about what resonates with your nature, what resonates with that person's nature, um, what what's unique about them, and you know, what are they truly interested in? I, I, I just love how you you put that phrase and. It's a great story around the the um, man with Down syndrome that um, is really into religion and wants to be a Catholic priest. And it makes me think about a couple of different ways to um, to think about where you want to go in life. So, and with vision. So we've we've kind of I think kind of a, maybe a, a bottom up approach is thinking about goals. So something very specific such as being a i want to be a catholic priest um versus kind of going from a, a, a higher level um down uh, which would be more setting a vision so 
um, you know, this is my view for what I view um, my life to be. And then kind of flushing out that, that vision and looking at this is what I want my family life to be. This is what I want my life of contribution to look like with uh, whether that's work or volunteering. Um, and looking at, I think, as you would put it, different domains of life and creating a, a bigger, more holistic version and then slowly dialing that down to the level of detail of goals. Um, so I think there's maybe multiple ways to um, to set a path forward. Um, what suggestions might you have for, for listeners in terms of a starting point, thinking about... Um, you know, okay, we, I understand the default options. I understand that there's better. And as you could put it, um, I want to imagine better. Um, when starting that process, would you suggest to, I guess, you know, what's a, a good, a good starting point? Well, I think it's uh, always good to uh, do things uh, with others um, because there's more resources uh, than trying to do everything yourself. So in that sense, uh, if you want to build uh, a, a bigger vision, uh, then it's better to do that in conjunction with other people that can help with the imagination process or the imagining better process. And of course, not everybody's good at imagining better. So if you could pick wisely, you'd pick people that are uh, that are um, you know more visionary in nature, or their vision is further evolved than others on that particular topic. Um, and uh, so that's a very good starting point for ha having regular sessions where you just try to imagine better for yourself or for someone else. But if it's the regularity of doing that, because you build vision over time, it's not something you do once, you do it many times, uh, and you revisit and refashion the vision many times. Uh, that's why it's uh, you could see it almost as an ongoing process as opposed to something you you've only done once or twice. Mm -hmm. Okay, so bringing other people in, getting their ideas, their contributions, ideally having these people being visionary, and doing that on a, um, a some sort of regularity or, or cadence. Um, because your vision's going to evolve over time as you try things and maybe you learn that, oh, I don't really like that, or I do really like that, um, or, um, you know, that thing doesn't resonate with, with my nature. Um, and then, you know, s slowly figuring that out and, and setting your new direction. So I, I really love how you put that. Now, when thinking about bringing other people in a word that a couple things come to mind for me uh, in terms of maybe being on the same page. So I could see, you know, like I think you kind of set a caution already around maybe bringing somebody in that's closed minded or bringing somebody in that um, maybe has a limited worldview uh, for people with disabilities so is it important to talk about maybe uh, shared values or shared principles um, before starting this process with uh, a group of people? 
I think to the extent that you can do that, uh, it's very consciousness raising because it, uh, it makes us aware of uh, not only differences of values and principle, but also differences of the priorities that people may have uh, that influence their uh, take on things. Uh, for instance, a lot of people don't like to do things that look difficult. And yet, if you're going to break new ground in life, you're going to have to do some difficult things. Um, and you're going to have to open yourself up to certain kinds of challenges that otherwise you might not have done. So you, you're looking for uh, traits in people that will help not only with the imagining better, but also the doing uh, that's, that flows from imagining better. If you like the implementing of a vision or the uh, putting it into place. Uh, and uh, this is why you, if you want to build enthusiasm for something, you don't want to invite a bunch of wet blankets uh, to join in the process. Uh, you'd, you'd rather have people that are much more affirming and positive rather than naysayers. So there is, there is a sense of, uh, you have to have a sense of practicality of who are likely to be people that um, are a good fit for the challenge that's to be faced. And not everybody's suited for every challenge. Um, but another thing I think that's very important, apart from you know the regularity of uh, you know imagining better, is uh, also the uh, fact of seeking examples of better. Uh, because vision is isn't compelling to people if there's no proof of it. Um, and uh, when somebody's already achieved what you think you might like to achieve, it means that it's doable. Uh, and, uh, for instance, I remember in the early days, uh, when we were trying to get people a home of their own, um, we rarely saw people that, uh, uh, had, had achieved that. Now today you'll find all kinds of people with disabilities that do have a home of their own, modest homes and not so modest homes, but it is really their home. And, uh, so it's a credible option because of all these good examples. You know, when you say, well, the person's much more disabled, they couldn't have a home of their own. Well, uh, there'd be all kinds of people that are more disabled that have a home of their own. Because as long as you have the right supports, your disability may not matter a whole lot. But if you're unsupported in an option, uh, you could get into difficulties if, if you did need particular kinds of support. So, um, I, I think it's really good to build for building vision to see what people have already accomplished, and even you can you can learn a lot about that even remotely just by the stories that are told or the videos of what they've done or uh, you know sort of those kinds of indirect ways. Even though you've not met the person, you can know what they've done with their life. Um, so. Um, that's why it's good to keep looking for it on the presumption that there is better, uh, because you'll find it eventually if you're looking. If you're not looking, you, you almost have, it almost has to run you over, um, which isn't necessarily good odds. Uh, so it's probably better to do a bit of searching for the good or the better uh, in 
you know, multiple ways. And in that sense, uh, a very good way to do that is through joining social networks uh, of one kind or another that share a common interest. Uh, so many families have their vision built by joining in with other groups of very progressive-minded families because they are uh, helped in their own journey by the journeys of the other families. And uh, as you might imagine, so uh, I think it's harder to do this in isolation. So seeking out supportive social networks uh, is often a very important catalyst for people to keep keep moving, not get stuck. Mm-hmm. I think that's a, a very important point. As humans, we rely a lot on our eyes and our <laughs> our vision, uh, our literal vision. Um, and I think we often say things <laughs> that let, such as, "I'll believe it when I see it." Um, or I won't believe it until I see it. And the point that you're bringing up here is it can be hard to imagine that future for our loved one until we've seen it. And one way to uh, hack that or to um, to get further belief that it's possible is to see how someone else, someone similar has already done that and and how they're living it. And um, as you suggested, Michael, I think family groups, um, social networks are a great place uh, to to get those stories and to meet those people, to learn. I think there's also great value in learning from them. So, you know, what were your first steps and what were maybe the challenges that you have overcome and who else should I talk to? Um, just great resources on, on helping to gain momentum and support through that journey. And I, I think there's also a lot of great places online. Like there's a lot of uh, stories that have been shared of, for example, uh, people with developmental disabilities that have their own home. So um, Partners for Planning, for example, p4p.ca has many great videos um, sharing these types of stories that can provide some inspiration. No, there really is, and uh, it's, it's good to alert people to that fact because we don't know what we don't know, and that's why reaching out allows others to update or to steer us in a different direction, or to link us to some resource we don't know about. Um, so uh, in this sense, being willing to be mentored by someone that's further along in the journey is a, a big help, because you're prepared to you know, get some pointers on what to think about, and uh, who to talk to, and in this sense, so you can sort of learn from seasoned people what the ins and outs are. And that's, of course, it's not just educational and vision building. It's also uh, capacity building because you end up being coached by somebody who knows what they're doing. And that, uh, not necessarily on everything, but certainly on lots of things. And that uh, strengthens your hand. Uh, Further, though, uh, it's often people can serve as role models um, and role models are something uh, that are important to our development because we uh, emulate the 
the role model, whoever that person might be, and follow in their footsteps. Um, and uh, it's a very key way to learn is through imitation and modeling. Um, but if you, there's an absence of role models, there'll be an absence of growth in those areas that the role represents. So in this way, um, in life, we've probably been all benefited from different kinds of role models. Um, and uh, we may not always have been conscious of it, but if, if you can at least be open to the idea, then it gives people a, a stronger hand in vision building and vision doing. Yeah, so I, I, I mean, I, I agree with the importance, Michael, of collaborating with other people and getting bringing in their ideas um, to create a vision because it's going to be more rich, more robust um, from those ideas and contributions of others. I think when I think about my, my sister's life, so my sister, um, Sarah has a developmental disability and going through the visioning process with her, um, multiple times now, it's, I think one of the most valuable things aside from getting others inputs and ideas and, and those people also know my sister very well. So they're able to help provide insights on, um, you know, what things are, what resonates with my sister's nature, um, which has been super valuable. But I think the other really valuable piece is in the doing, as you mentioned earlier, and to have, people in your social network that have this that are all headed in the same direction in terms of how they think about your vision and how they're thinking about your life your life and having alignment with you and going down that path i think is a super powerful thing i, I quite agree i mean uh, the uh these networks don't have to be extensive, but they do need to be present because uh, it, it, if you like, uh, vision is a shared reality. It's not just an individual reality. And shared vision means that people join together in the effort. They have enough in common in terms of their vision that they can uh, play helpful roles uh, in achieving that vision. So they they... And part of that's coordinated by having a similar vision, not necessarily identical, but similar vision, and a similar level of resolve to do something about that vision. And, of course, uh, thirdly, that people bring different strengths then or capacities, you know, that can aid in the doing, you know, depending on what their skill set is or their talents, uh, that sort of thing. So it's a richer mix than if we all just tried to do this on our own. Mm -hmm. For sure. And those social networks can look a little bit different for each person. And um, I had a good conversation with Rebecca Pauls from Plan in uh, British Columbia on um, personal support networks. So um, listeners can go check out that conversation if they want to learn more about personal support networks and, and social networks, but they come in, in, in different varieties. One that people or listeners might be familiar with are our support circles, but I don't think to create 
your vision, you have to have a, a support circle. Um, we all have our own personal networks. I have one, Michael, you have one. Um, it might be a little bit less formal than a, than a support circle, but I think it's just important to point out that there's different, maybe different types um, of social networks and, and they can, they can look different and they don't have to look a specific way to help you to create and live out your vision. However, a personal, a different structure, the, the right structure for you, um, I think is something that you need to, to determine in terms of how you want your social network or your personal support network to, to look and to, and to work with you. And uh, it's certainly more discouraging when people are socially isolated. Mm-hmm. They just uh, easily run out of steam. Uh, whereas the, being connected with people keeps adding sort of energy and uh, resolve. Uh, and uh, that wouldn't be there if people were more isolated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. So, Michael, we... Uh, before the conversation that we had today, we spoke a little bit about um, a life-giving vision versus a life-denying vision. And one simple example that I could that I that comes to mind for this would be the vision of having an individual having a home of their own, which would. And the example that I'm thinking would be life-giving versus life-denying would be um, the example where someone with a developmental disability lives in a group home. And I'm, I'm making that classification based on um, having a home of your own. Um, you're, you're well-supported and um, you have choice and control in your home versus um, living in a group home where... Um, your choice and control is is limited. So I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about um, life-giving visions versus life-denying visions, and I'm wondering if you have uh, might have any examples of those. Yeah, I think a, um, a very interesting, inspiring example of this would be some services I've seen for people with complex medical needs who uh, uh, are living in a home of their own, uh, but getting all the health care supports they need. So in other words, they have the best of both worlds. They have very good support, medical support, as well as other kinds of support, but they also have a home of their own, where really they're the captain of the ship uh, and it is it's it's not a institutional setting it's a just a natural home of one's own um, and yet I think a lot of people would think oh since they have such complex medical needs they should be in a nursing home or some such place and uh, so if if the assumption is that oh that's where they should be then you're going to knock out the possibility of being in your own home uh, and having a home of one's own. So the vision of for uh, the person needs a nursing home is life denying because it knocks out life giving things like having a home of your own. 
Uh, and it's unnecessary because uh, you can, what this example demonstrates, this particular service, is that uh, you can build in good medical supports such that people can uh, have a life of their own and, and a home of one's own. Um, so they're not uh, mutually kind of canceling the, each other out. They're, in fact, integrated as part of a, a unified solution to other needs that the person has besides their medical needs. Otherwise, uh, you know, uh, I mean, if you don't grant that people want a life of their own, then the attention might just go to what are the services they need rather than the what is the life they need. So a life-giving vision isn't just life about that you're getting the right supports, it's that you're getting a life. Uh, so that's what life giving is. It gives you life opportunities that uh, might not exist otherwise. And life denying vision, such as thinking somebody should be in a nursing home, means that you give up everything so that you can get your medical care, uh, which is a false choice, uh, given that example. So you can see the interplay between life giving uh, choices and life denying choices just in that example. But again, another example of this would be employment. Uh, there would be states in the United States, for instance, where about 75 to 80 percent of people are working at regular jobs in the community. And yet there'd be other jurisdictions in the U.S. where it'd be a fraction of that or in other countries. For instance, the Canadian numbers aren't uh, quite as sizable as the American. Um, so the vision is weaker for uh, employment as a life possibility. And, uh, and so, the, the, if you like, the American uh, leading edge of that is a challenge to our vision because it shows what can really be done. Uh, and with even, you know, when three out of four people are working, that's a very significant amount of employment. And because it wasn't like that uh, 30, 40 years ago, it would be probably a third of that. So not only are people working, they're massively working more than a generation and a half ago. So you can see that vision has the potential to transform people's you know, employment potential. Uh, first of all, to see that they have potential and then to, to, to be able to do something about that potential in a regular, inclusive uh, employment setting. If that vision isn't present, it just won't happen. And uh, one of the things that I enjoy telling people about is that it has happened uh, and uh, it just uh, gives greater credibility to the claim that people could have an expanded life in terms of normal employment. So uh, there are many such examples of uh, life-giving uh, uh, vision uh, and it doesn't mean that people need to believe the vision. Um, Initially, uh, they may test that vision, uh, you know, want proof of it or be further persuaded, um, which is understandable because uh, conviction about the vision doesn't necessarily arrive at the same time as uh, being exposed to a vision. Uh, so people will, if you like, kick the tires, test it uh, and whatnot. Uh, but if they are persuaded eventually, then they'll begin to act on that vision. 
And uh, uh, that's what we see. We see a lot more people that went through the struggle of, is it possible? And eventually became persuaded. And now we have people, people with disabilities that believe they can work. Their parents believe they can work and get paid. The community around them sees them working. So the whole vision of everybody more collectively shifts over the decades as people become, if the, the proof of it becomes more and more evident. Uh, Michael, we've covered a lot here in, in terms of vision. And I think at a minimum, we've helped to raise the consciousness of, of those that have listened around the importance of vision and setting a direction and um, having people with disabilities being the captain of their ship, but also bringing other people on board their ship um, to set sail towards the direction that, that they want to travel toward. And I think you've done a good job of, um, of helping to, to raise the consciousness and, and give some ideas on how people can start. Um, are there any final messages that you want to leave listeners today? Yeah, I think uh, vision won't prosper unless there are leaders who uh, you know, sort of mobilize people around the vision. Because um, vision, uh, you have to have buy-in to vision. And you have to win that buy-in. And this is where leadership is very helpful, not just individual leadership, but also collective leadership. Uh, and because uh, uh, leadership is constantly something we need for the next wave of whatever we're going to do, uh, investments in uh, visionary leadership are really a good investment because you then have the leadership you need because you've invested in cultivating that leadership. And, uh, and in some cases, it's not just that you, uh, you need new leadership, which you will, but you also need uh, leadership renewal because uh, it's a long struggle for people chasing a vision, trying to make it happen. And so that people need ways to get re-energized, renewed, uh, recommitted, um, and a lot of that takes place in the context of networks and uh, social movements. Uh, and you think of any group of activists, they, they, um, they help support each other, um, but they also are challenged by each other. And in, and in the process, there's more leadership catalyzed, uh, stimulated. And so I think vision, uh, without uh, the, uh, the constant sort of stimulation and renewal of the vision, it can go a bit flat and people lose their vision. And when they lose vision, they stop, basically. They kind of get to a point and they don't go further. So uh, if you want uh, further progress, you need to often redevelop the vision for the next wave, whatever that next wave might be. Uh, for instance, just going back to the employment example, you may be very successful in, in certain uh, types of businesses um, and less so in others because you don't really know how to influence that sector of the economy. Uh, and so you need a different kind of leadership possibly for the next wave of challenges to employment. 
Uh, for instance, a good example of this is just the major progress we've seen with um, individual small businesses for people with disabilities, or what sometimes are called micro enterprises, uh, or sort of one person businesses. And that's a very important niche because all kinds of businesses have been created in and around a particular person with a disability. Uh, they have been quite viable businesses. And this goes back for some time now. So we, we're, we're seeing that that aspect of employment is now getting and has received quite a bit of uh, leadership. And therefore, we're seeing a lot of progress in it. Um, Whereas in other areas, we might see very little penetration of people with disabilities into particular workforces. Uh, so that might require a different kind of uh, leadership going forward. So I, I always like to link vision with needs on the one hand, what people need, uh, but also vision with leadership because it takes leadership to get implementation of vision. Uh, and to update that vision when it needs updating. So uh, I see that as a kind of uh, investment challenge by investing in people and emerging leadership. Uh, we're, we're seeding the ground for the next wave of what needs to get done. So all of these are interrelated as a practical matter. I love that. And Michael, thank you for your vision your vision to help us create better, uh, more inclusive, rich lives for people with intellectual and developmental disabilities and people that are marginalized. So just uh, some, some sincere gratitude for, for you and for coming on the podcast today and, and doing the work that, that you do. So thank you. All right. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Michael Kendrick as much as I did. And hopefully it gave you uh, an opportunity to think about vision and maybe open your mind to vision, its importance, why we need vision, why we need to have a vision, why it's important for an individual with a developmental or intellectual disability to have a vision and how to go about creating that vision and then doing the work, as Michael put it, to implement that vision and the leadership that it takes around that. So I hope this podcast started to open your mind, but also give you the building blocks to creating a good life and imagining a better life and to doing the work to help individuals with intellectual and developmental disabilities to have a good life. So I ask you to, to, to maybe think about one final thing. What is the next step that you're going to take to help your loved one or to support your loved one in creating a big bold vision for their life what is that one next step and that is my challenge to you uh leaving this podcast now as we wrap up this podcast episode i want to ask you one quick favor i want to ask you to sign up 
and subscribe to the Empowering Ability podcast on your smartphone. So whether you have an Apple or an Android phone, you can do this. So if you have an Apple phone, it's just the podcast icon, the purple icon on your phone. Click on that and then type in Empowering Ability in the search empowering ability in the search and if you're on android any podcast app that you use it could be spotify or it could be podbean or it could be stitcher whatever podcast app you're using just go to your podcast app and type in empowering ability and hit subscribe and new episodes will go directly to your phone so this helps in terms of me getting you new episodes um, and it helps to grow the it helps to grow empowering abilities so if you could stop what you're doing and go to your podcast app type in empowering ability and hit subscribe that would be incredible uh, i also want to remind you that you can subscribe this is a different kind of subscribe subscribe to empowering ability by going to the website empoweringability.org and contributing your hard-earned dollars towards the development of new content new episodes new blogs and the new paid content that is coming you will get access to that by subscribing now and you can select the level of subscription that you would like to uh, move forward with so that's totally up to you what you would like to pay but it's a huge benefit towards um, the development of this work the continuation of this work and it's also investment an investment in yourself and thank you so much for listening to the podcast today Uh, if you like this episode and you think you know someone that would benefit please share it with them Uh, Be a part of the change to think differently about disability.